This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 123, May 13, 1986. I'd like to start this evening by calling to your attention a book that one of you, Vic Cruz, sent to me. A thoroughly delightful book, both good economics and good humor. It is John Train, Famous financial fiascos. Train's books are always good reading. This was published in 1985 by Crown Publishers. What Train does in this book is to give us an overview of a number of economic uh, problems that have faced man in uh, the Western world for the past two or three centuries. He does this because he wants to call attention to the common factor and to point up the crisis we are now in. As he says very early in the book, the Grace Commission in 1984 January uh, pointed out that the General Services Administration, which operates the federal real estate, employs 17 times as many people and spends 14 times as much in overhead per unit managed as a typical private sector company managing comparable property. On top of that, the federal government owns a third of all the land in the United States, and it occupies four times more office space than is found in our ten largest cities. It is of note, by the way, that the Constitution forbids the federal government to own any land in the states except those for military bases, post offices, and federal buildings. Train calls attention to the fact that every time civil government has been involved in agriculture, the results have been uniformly disastrous. And he cites, for example, the ground nuts or peanut scheme in Africa which the labor government in Britain after World War II embarked on. A tremendous disaster, and it is interesting that none of the planners had ever seen Africa, but on paper they planned a perfect scheme that was going to solve a good many of the problems of Africa and of the empire. This book is full of examples like that, Agricultural land, as they point out, requires constant skilled attention. If you have stock in a large corporation with a good management, you don't have to intervene personally. But even though most wealth still derives ultimately from land, very few people are aware of the problems of getting that wealth from the land, what is involved in growing things. And the nut result is that again and again we have seen disaster. We also see the unwillingness of politicians to learn from the past. As he points out in dealing with paper money, John Law's inflation took place in the early 1700s in France. At the end of the 1700s, France, having had the example of John Law and the 
tremendous havoc that was worked in France, which helped indeed pave the way for the destruction of France subsequently by the revolution, still refused to learn the lesson. The reason for this is particularly interesting. When the Revolutionary Assembly met, they feared, some of the members at least did, the consequence of issuing paper money. Mirabeau, who was the most influential member, denounced it as a loan to an armed robber. That's what he called paper money, and argued for the abolition thereof. However, even he finally went along with the majority. The majority decided that issuing paper money would be safe. Their reasons were first, that the new constitutional government would be less corruptible than the old royal one had been. And so it would be safe for uh, the revolutionary government to adopt paper currencies. Then second, the revolution had expropriated the church estates and they would issue money against that land. Of course, such uh, paper money is not negotiable. The idea is not new. It was tried in the colonial period in this country. It has always failed. What it did in revolutionary France was to create finally a torrent of paper money. And finally, because they did not want paper money, farmers and manufacturers decreased their production. The result was rationing. Then the revolutionary regime required people to accept paper money, decreed 20 years imprisonment in chains for anyone selling the paper money at a discount, then made it punishable by death to make a difference between paper money and gold and silver in any transaction or to invest abroad. But nothing worked. As a result, finally, they substituted for their paper money a new paper currency, the mandats, which again, in a few months, lost 97% of their value. Finally, because gold coins had by that time increased to 600 times their nominal value compared to paper, paper money had to be recognized as essentially worthless. The man who best learned this lesson was Napoleon Bonaparte. At his first cabinet meeting, he declared, I will pay cash or pay nothing. He never allowed paper money. And in his economics, Napoleon was thoroughly sound. As John Train develops his argument, and in the course of which he deals with things like the South Sea Bubble and how even intelligent people like Isaac Newton succumbed to the hysteria, the mad rush to get uh, rich quick. He says that people have again and again refused to learn. And as far as uh, 
people are concerned, they get caught up in groupthink. He says groupthink rules the stock market. It governs people in all walks of life. And I would say that without faith, men are going to be caught up in group thinking, that against their better judgment, their knowledge, they're going to go along with the crowd because they're ready to believe that somehow human beings have found a way to alter the basic laws of creation. Today, he says, we are in a crisis, one that is coming very rapidly. And repudiation of federal debts, of state debts all over the world is forthcoming. And he said the net result will be catastrophe. He says today few countries can even pay the interest, let alone the principal, on their indebtedness. He adds that even America's national debt now equals the values of all the companies on the stock exchange, and the interest on that national debt is equal to our budget deficit. We are really printing money, he says, to pay the interest like any third world country. So he concludes something is going to snap. And as a result, you had better be prepared for it. Moreover, he says the politicians know this. They're already figuring, as Felix Rohatin, a former Secretary of the Treasury, on ways to repudiate debt and how to do it least harmfully. Well, for example, he calls attention to the fact that not only do the people in Washington know what they're doing, but the people in New York. For example, in New York they have permanent rent control. As a result of this, landlords have given up buildings which cannot be maintained because the rent does not equal the expenses. So mile upon mile of Harlem and the South Bronx are filled with very fine old buildings which have been burned out now since they're abandoned like German cities in World War II. And he asks, do the politicians understand this fatal process that they shrink the housing supply and raise housing costs? He says, perfectly. Do they espouse rent control to get elected? Of course. When special interests get strong enough to control decision-making, sound government becomes impossible. Then, at the end, he says, no regulation can keep the inevitable from taking place. No controls. Hammurabi prescribed execution, apparently by drowning, he says, for merchants who demanded payment in silver. So did the, the directory during the French hyperinflation. Diocletian's code specified the price of each quality of shirt, as unavailingly did our Office of Price Administration in World War II. But suppressing the symptoms 
doesn't halt the disease. The price of wheat rose over 100 times between Augustus and Diocletian's code. Far from being arrested in the next generation, it rose about a thousand-fold. So why, after all these millennia, do we still treat inflation by controlling prices instead of government expenses and the money supply? Invincible ignorance, said the Swedish Chancellor Oxenstierna. The world always wishes to be deceived. Let it be deceived. So concludes John Train in his book, Famous Financial Fiascos. I urge you to read it. The crisis is coming, and you had better be forewarned. Unless you live by faith, you're going to believe and be sucked in by all these schemes whereby politicians have been corrupting our world. Now to another book of a very different sort, this one by Janet Dunbar, entitled Golden Interlude, The Edens in India, 1836 to 1842. This was published in 1985 in England uh, by Alan Sutton. This is uh, really mining, this book does, mines the diary of the Edens, their letters, during their stay in India. These were two sisters from a prominent English family, the Edens, related to the nobility, some in their family were of the nobility, and when one of their members uh, was in India with a prominent position, the two unmarried sisters went with him to care for the house and to look after him. The book is throughout a delight, both in what they have to say about life in England before they went over and after as well, and also uh, their account of life in India. Of course, uh, it is very interesting as they describe the life among the European, the English women in India. They were entirely cared for. Every household had innumerable servants. And with the difference in climate, and the climate was not the best, the women uh, made a profession of being ill. Uh, the women began to feel so sorry for themselves that uh, Telling a woman that she looked well was regarded as being very offensive. <laughs> However, the book is also full of very interesting sidelights on the life of India at that time. During hard times, it was commonplace for the poor to sell their children. Today we have our ecologists bewailing the fact that for so many years, the man-eating tigers of India were shot by European hunters. 
Well, you get a different picture here as you see glimpses of these tigers coming freely into the villages to kill people. To revive those man-eating tigers in great numbers will again bring that kind of disaster. We also see the fact of the satis, widows being burned to death with their husband and because of their culture wanting it. Moreover, we see other aspects of life there. For example, I quote, every year at the time where crops are sown, a certain number of human creatures are sacrificed and their limbs spread about the land. Sometimes they are literally cut up alive. Three weeks ago, the European resident there rescued 28 some of them had been bought as children and brought up for the purpose. Eight girls he had sent down to the orphan school here. They would have been sacrificed this spring. Some of the future victims are allowed to marry, but their families as well as themselves are sacrificed in time. Unquote. With the return to native rule in Bangladesh and in India. This kind of practice is returning. In one of our easy chairs of a couple of years ago, on the return of Mark, my son Mark Rashtuni, and Howard Amundsen from India, we had a report on this kind of thing happening with respect to a dam that was built and a large number of people sacrificed when the foundations were laid. The Eden sisters also report on the Thuggies, members of a sect in India that ritually murdered people, thousands and thousands of people annually. Moreover, the Eden sisters are equally unsparing of any European who is guilty of crimes. For example, they give uh, an instance of a man, a superintendent of roads, who, when he was robbed, seized a number of the men whom he suspected, had a gallows erected, tied up a number of these men to it by their hands, their feet not touching the ground, and lit straw under them. And the sisters say this was the least of the horrors. It made George ill to read the rest. Now these men were arrested. And to quote from uh, the record, the judge, Sir Henry Seaton, in his charge to the jury, called the crime manslaughter. Knowing that there was such a horror of capital punishment in the country that a charge of murder would be thrown out, he intended to give Hughes the maximum sentence within his power, transportation for life. To his astonishment, the jury brought in a verdict of non, not guilty. One of the magistrates told George and Emily that the low type of Europeans who generally made up the jury always agreed to acquit any man who was tried for the murder of a native.
Later on, we read that uh, he did what he could to get rid of this man. But the account is interesting. Given the fact that you have instances like this man Hughes, the overall picture is very clearly this. Colonialism is very much condemned in our day. But one would have to say that a dramatic improvement in the quality of life in India took place because of colonialism. That a great many evils were eliminated to a major degree. And that the requirement that India in some of these things like selling children, satis, human sacrifices and so on, did indeed impose an alien standard, a Christian conscience on India. But everyone was the better for it. It's a telling account, a very moving account. The illustrations are also good. They are sketches done at the time by the sisters. Now to another book written by John MacDonald, Flight from Dharan, D-H-A-H-R-A-N, in Saudi Arabia. The subtitle is The True Experiences of an American Businessman Held Hostage in Saudi Arabia, published by Prentice Hall in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, in 1981. I think it is possibly in print yet, but I'm not sure. What the author calls attention to is that when businessmen who are not major corporations go there uh, to take on a job, if they win the contract, they are immediately subjected to a shakedown. Every condition of the contract is violated by the Saudis. They are prohibited from leaving the country. Their passports are taken. And the net result is that they have to come up with whatever sum, a million or whatever it might be, in order to have permission to leave. So that doing business with Saudi Arabia is doing business with thieves. On top of that, and this is a significant fact, and MacDonald got into trouble because when he escaped and he was thrown into prison, he told the truth about this when he came to this country and angered our State Department. I quote from page 116, Our ambassadorial staff exists inside the kingdom only at the pleasure of the king not too different from embassies and consulates in Western nations. What was different, though, was the fact that the Saudi government, in the form of armed police and soldiers, had upon occasion entered our facilities without request or consent. They would do so again. Contrary to international convention, our consular offices were not considered to be sovereign U.S. ground. More, no member of our staff could leave the kingdom without specific permission from the Saudi government. 
in the light of subsequent events in Iran. These points are interesting. If one Arab nation forced us into this arrangement, why not another? A very good question. And the question that comes to mind is, has it been done and we don't know about it? It's a question this man raises himself. When he was in prison, one uh, Arab came over to him and handed him a card. And I quote, it was a business card from a competitor with a Houston company. The prisoner told me a complex story which I discounted, but later heard was true. It seems the poor American arrived at the airport on his first trip into Saudi and was taken directly from the plane to the jailhouse. A former agent of his firm had a disagreement with his boss and arranged a special welcome. After a week in jail, a million dollars was raised and he got out. Now, let me stop there to say, this kind of thinking, so alien to our civilized standards, is routine in Saudi Arabia, and we suppress the fact. We do nothing to call attention to these things and subject ourselves to every kind of indignity. MacDonald, as I say, finally escaped. But he found when he came here, the, uh, he was broke as a result of the whole experience, although he began to prosper after a while on his return to Texas. But he found himself in disfavor with the State Department, with our government in Washington, because he told the truth about his experiences there. And apparently the truth is highly unwelcome to the State Department. Let foreigners treat us in any way they want, and we are supposed to take it so as not to disrupt relationships. This is the standard. And all that can be said about it is that it's high time we regained our self-respect and abandoned this kind of compromise with peoples. I'd like to go now to a book by Philip Priestley, Victorian Prison Lives, English Prison Biography, 1830 to 1940, published in London and New York by Methuen, and it came out in 1985. Very briefly, this book deals with a prison system which was relatively new at that time. The prison system came in as a result of Quaker thinking, the belief that every man has a divine spark in him, an inner light, and all that is needed is to take him away from a bad environment and put him in a cell like a monk. And that's where the prison cell term comes from. The cell originally was a monk's retreat. And there the inner light would cause him to meditate on his sins and make him a new person. Of course, it did not work that way because people are fallen creatures. They do not have a spark of divinity in themselves. And 
Instead, the thief in prison is busy justifying himself. As one writer in these early years said, and I quote, many a professional thief has said to me, the whole world is dishonest. The grocer sands his sugar, the stock exchanges, the bankers and the merchants have their tricks of trade. The point is that those who cheat legally, keeping within the letter of the law, are more cowardly, while we are brave enough to act out the same moral principles and dare the law. Of course, we don't blame them for their methods, only that they find fault with and punish us because our circumstances prohibit us from getting money in the way they do." Unquote. In other words, the justification of the prisoners was simply that everybody is a crook. The only difference is that we're not rich and successful ones. I can vouch for the fact that this kind of argument is as common as ever today. Now, just one more fact from this book, which is full of interesting details. When it came time to be executed, the uh, question was, what are they thinking of? In particular, the woman. When they are faced with execution, what are their thoughts about shortly before their execution? And the woman in charge of looking after these women who were going to the gallows said this, I grieve to say that commonly the chief thought relates to her appearance on the scaffold, the dress in which she shall be hanged. Unquote. <laughs> I should think that would be the furthest from their thoughts. Now on to another work. This one, published in 1977 and out of print, by Nancy F. Cott, C-O-T-T, The Bonds of Womanhood, Woman's Sphere in New England, 1780-1835. to I would say that the author is probably a feminist. However, the thing that comes through in spite of her bias is this, that women then did not by and large feel that they were oppressed. As a matter of fact, many of them thought they were more important. For example, an 18-year-old woman in uh, Massachusetts said this, and I quote, what an important sphere a woman fills. How thoroughly she ought to be qualified for it. I think hers a more honorable employment than a man's, for all men feel so grand and boast so much and make such a pother about their being lords of the world below. If their mothers had not taken such good care of them when they were babies, and instilled good principles into them as they grew up. What, think you, would have become of the mighty animals? Oh, every man of sense must humbly bow before a woman. She bears the sway, not man as he presumptuously supposes." Unquote. There is a great deal of that kind of 
opinion in this book. The statement, for example, that women really hold the reins of government, and they know it. So that, uh, for example, uh, women do, in a sense, hold the reins of government and sway the enzymes of national prosperity and glory. Yea, they give direction to the moral sentiments of our rising and hopes and contribute to form their moral state. Much, much more like that, which indicates women were not feeling sorry for themselves. There is this interesting statement that uh, the author, Dr. Cott, cites. There can be no human culture without classification. No human culture without classification. In other words, you cannot have a total equalization everything of everything. Some things are good, some things are more valued, more prized. So high and low in a society, speaking of, of things from a human point of view, depends to a degree on how you evaluate things. If you classify things in terms of the Word of God, you're going to give a high place to men and to women. If you look at them from a male chauvinist point of view or a female chauvinist point of view, you're going to have a radically different classification. In other words, your system of classification will determine what your values are. And if you do not derive your system of classification from the Bible, your whole perspective is going to be warped and radically wrong. Now on to a very, very different book, which I think is quite a remarkable story. It was published by IDEA, a Catholic pro-life group in Madison, Wisconsin. It was published, as a matter of fact, uh, well, originally in 1952, and again in 1979, and reprinted again recently. The author is Father William R. Bonniewell, B as in boy, O-N-N-I-W-E-L-L. -L. The title is the Life of Blessed Margaret of Castello, 1287 to 1320. Very dramatic story about a very important man, in fact, a leader in Italian life, a nobleman, head of a principality, whose family name we do not know because as the story of Margaret of Castello was written, to avoid offending this important family, they suppressed the name of the family. So we don't know the name of the family. The family was hoping for the birth of a child, a son. Finally, a child was born, horribly defective. Everything about her showed a defect. In fact, there was scarcely anything that uh, you could say was whole 
in her body. She was an embarrassment because she was blind, she was crippled, she was hunched back, her, she had uh, problems, her feet were deformed. She was embarrassing to look at. As a result, they hid her out in a uh, part of the castle where she would not normally be seen because they were ashamed of her. Much later, they heard that at a particular shrine, some marvelous miracles and cures were being, uh, were taking place, so they took her there. The girl prayed there all day. Nothing happened. When they saw that nothing happened, the parents abandoned her and left. She then, uh, in between for a while, they had her walled up next to a church where she could hear and in that sense take part in the services. Food was handed in to her in this little cubicle, but she was shut off from people. Well, when she was abandoned, she had no place to go, and her life was indeed a very difficult one. She went through a series of serious problems. The professional beggars didn't want her around. But little by little, by dint of doing good to the best of her ability, by moving people here and there to take care of others because her concern was not herself, but others whom she felt were more needy than herself, she became very deeply loved in Castello. She died uh, barely into middle age and has been very much revered, and to this day there is a great deal of interest and concern in her and the hope that she will be sanctified, made into a saint. But be that as it may, it's a very moving story of a very remarkable person. A kind of story that uh, startles you, that someone so ill-equipped to face life, facing it alone, always with a happy, sunny disposition that shamed people who had very few problems. Well, from the Blessed Margaret of Castello to a very different person, J. Paul Getty who died a few years ago and in his time was the richest man in the world. This is a book by Robert Lenzer, L-E-N-Z-N-E-R, The Great Getty, published by Crown in 1985. Getty was really a remarkable man in that he actually boasted that he had never given a nickel to charity or to anyone in his magnificent English home. He avoided turning on the heat so that guests at his parties had to uh, dress heavily to avoid the cold. He had a phone booth so that no one would use his phone and charge a nickel or a dime to him.
In fact, someone close to him said, the act of being mean gave him great pleasure. In fact, he boasted very early that he had conned his father, and when his father died, he bragged that he had fleeced his own mother, which he did. He had an admiration for Hitler. He married many times. He uh, never loved anybody except himself, if he did that. You may recall the incident where his grandson was kidnapped and it was months before he was rescued and the kidnappers finally cut off an ear and caused him international embarrassment before he was uh, ransomed. Getty identified himself with Roman emperors he collected art and established a museum which is the richest museum in the world and which will create a number of other museums in order to gain immortality through culture. You may recall his pictures, the tight skin. That was from innumerable facelifts. He was quite a weird character. As a matter of fact, uh, his sexual sins, which were many, were very dear to him. And when he was dying, and they gave him some medicine, which they told him would help, he balked at taking it because he was afraid it might interfere with his sexual abilities. So much for J. Paul Getty. Now to... Uh, Lewis B. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Life on the American Frontier. This book was published in 1968 and is now out of print. Very interesting account of uh, the frontier beginning with the earliest days of the colonies. And... Uh, we must remember that some of the people that were first brought over were not all of the same quality. Some came over because they wanted to work and uh, make their fortune. Others came over for religious reasons. William Byrd II, in 1728, gives us an account of uh, life in the North Carolina back country as he saw it. That was before a great many of the very fine inhabitants of that area came over. But he said, and I quote, Surely there is no place in the world where the inhabitants live with less labor than in North Carolina. It approaches nearer to the description of Lubberland than any other by the great felicity of the climate the easiness of raising provisions, and the slothfulness of the people. Indian corn is of so great increase that a little pains will subsist a very large family with bread, and then they may have meat without any pains at all by the help of the low grounds and the great variety of mass that grows in the highlands. The men, for their part, just like the Indians, impose all the work upon the poor woman. 
They make their wives rise out of their beds early in the morning. At the same time, they lie and snore till the sun has risen one-third of his course and dispersed all the unwholesome damp. Then, after stretching and yawning for half an hour, they light their pipes and, under the protection of a cloud of smoke, venture out into the open air. Though if it happened to be never so little cold, they quickly return shivering into the chimney corner. When the weather is mild, they stand leaning with both their arms upon the cornfield fence and gravely consider whether they had best go and take a small heat at the hoe, but generally find reason to put it off till another time. Thus they loiter away their lives like Solomon Sluggard, with their arms across, and at the winding up of the year scarcely have bread to eat. To speak the truth, tis a thorough aversion to labor that makes people file off to North Carolina, where plenty and a warm sun confirm them in their disposition to laziness for their whole lives. Well, that's not North Carolina as we know it today, at least the North Carolina I know. But I thought it was an interesting account by a Virginian, Bird. The book as a whole is very interesting. And uh, it has a great deal to say about the frontier, the problems thereof, the kind of thing people had sometimes to do, and uh, life as well among the Indians. In fact, he says, in some parts of the West, the White settlers had learned from the Indians that dogs were edible, and so they were very congenial to eating dog meat and ready to do it in great quantities. They had gone native to no small extent. Now from a book of some years ago, Marshall L. Goldman, USSR in Crisis the failure of an economic system. This was published in, well, 1983, not too long ago, but uh, it may be out of print. However, this little paragraph tickled me. During one session of the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, SALT, the American side was enumerating what it thought to be the exact size of the Soviet and U.S. missile forces. During the next break in the talks, Nikolai Vasilovich Ogarkov, one of the senior Soviet military men present, immediately pulled one of the American participants aside. Please, he pleaded, do not discuss data about the size of our forces. The civilian members of our delegation are not supposed to have access to this information." Unquote. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, I'll call brief attention to another book, an older one, this by one of the more brilliant uh, writers on philosophy. This book was published in 1974. The author is Albert William Levi, Philosophy as Social Expression. It, Levi has written some of the finest books on philosophy of anyone. In this book, he deals with uh, philosophy 
ancient philosophy with its stress on aristocracy, aristocratic thought and culture, medieval philosophy, the age of the saint, he calls it, and growth in holiness as the goal of philosophy, holiness with knowledge. Then modern philosophy, beginning with Descartes, the age of the gentleman, the man who assessed things, standing apart from them, detached in his view. Then contemporary philosophy, the age of the professional, people whose business is philosophy and who go at it not with any concern for truth, but playing games with ideas. Well, our time is limited now, so I'd like to turn to something very different. This is a poem by one of the poets of a couple of generations ago, Sam Walter Foss, whose poem, uh, House by the Side of the Road, was very, very popular in its day, is now largely forgotten. The title of this one is the ideal husband to his wife. We've lived for forty years, dear wife, and walked together side by side. And you today are just as dear as when you were my bride. I've tried to make life glad for you, one long sweet honeymoon of joy, a dream of marital content, without the least alloy. I've smoothed all borders from our path that we in peace might toil along, but always hastening to admit that I was right and you were wrong. No mad diversity of creed has ever sundered me from thee, for I permit you evermore to borrow your ideas of me, and thus it is, through weal or woe, our love forevermore endures. For I permit that you should take my views and creeds and make them yours. And thus I let you have my way, and thus in peace we toil along. For I am willing to admit that I am right, and you are wrong. And when our matrimonial skiff strikes snags in love's meandering stream, I lift our shallop from the rocks and float as in a placid dream. And well I know our marriage bliss, while life shall last, will never cease. For I shall always let thee do in generous love just what I please. Peace comes and discord flies away. Love's bright day follows hatred's night. For I am ready to admit that you are wrong, and I am right. You have to admire a husband like that. <laughs> so, with that, let me say thank you for listening, and uh, it has been a delight uh, to share these things with you, and I'm looking forward to our next session together. God bless you all.